Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain with your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. Make the ritual last forever. Welcome to the podcast where we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regard it as our task to brush history against the grain. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Weiner, and with me as always is the man with four Olympic gold medals in the biathlon, Chris Padgett. Thank you, Josh. I'm doing good. It's uh, it's great to be back on, on air. I know we've both been in something of a moral wilderness since we last broadcast, trying to... Uh, to decide how we might plausibly stay on Spotify with our podcast now that uh, Neil Young and those folks are boycotting Joe Rogan. What what did you come up with? I mean, what 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 all I can say is that living in in the world today is a moral compromise, right? So, uh, which which compromise do we make? Which com- compromise do we not make? I'm fine. We'll, so let's get off Spotify. We should we should we should we should bail. We'll wait till after this episode. Though. How about that? How many common uh, listeners do we have with Joe? That's a that's a really good question. At least four, I would say. Right. The other nine hundred ninety six thousand nine hundred ninety six are are exclusively Joe Rogan, but four of them. Yeah. And and those four either hate listening to us or hate listening to him. I can't, you know, one or the other. <laughs> well, we'll take them with us when we go. How's that? Yes, we're going to grab those four. We need we need all four. I don't know how much you've been thinking about uh, children's books lately. I know your boys are sort of past the age, perhaps, where they have uh, you read them a, a bedtime story. But you know, with with two grandkids coming up, Josh, I got to pay attention to these things. I have to know what's going on. And uh, I read a piece recently uh, that uh, featured a new line of uh, children's books that I thought you might be interested in, that that our, our readers might be interested in. Uh, the, the four or so uh, listeners, rather, that we bring over from Joe Rogan, <laughs> uh, and and the uh, the author of the piece made you know made a point said, look, ch- children's bookstores are full of titles celebrating exemplary figures, right? Heroic. For some reason, we think kids need to read about heroic figures, um, and 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 so you know one of the common, I guess, more common subjects of these uh, these books is uh, well, somebody like say Ruth. Bader Ginsburg, the late Supreme Court justice and pioneering uh, feminist legal mind. Uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, gets a lot, apparently, of play in the kids' uh, books market. Uh, But uh, at least one browser, one shopper, uh, one consumer of of said books was wondering why there wasn't, for example, the conservative counterpart to Justice Ginsburg, that is uh, Amy Coney Barrett, Justice Barrett. Why was there now uh, children's books devoted to her, Josh? There's so many questions I have right now, but the, the, the funniest thing is that these kind of conservative complaints, like why why do you get this and we don't? My, my reaction is I don't want the first thing. I don't care. <laughs> I don't really want a Justice Bader Ginsburg book for kids. 
it doesn't appeal to me. Um, so if she wants to write a book about Amy Comey Barrett and put it in the bookstore, uh, we'll let the market decide. That's what she would want, right? We'll let the market decide if there's a bunch of kids clamoring for Amy Comey, Comey, Coney Barrett yeah. books. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Well, you okay, can bring so your grant. The first question, though, is if I can't let you off the hook that easy. The first question, yeah. where in the kids' book section will it go? Will it go in, say, you know, the scary book section or the happy book section? Or where, where are you going to put it exactly? Um, between Goodnight Moon and uh, <laughs> Where the Wild Things Are? Is that, is that fair? Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe in, I, I like that, maybe in with Where the Wild Things Are. Uh, well, you know, this is a question that that really was uh, on the mind of uh, a Miss Bethany Mandel, the editor uh, of a new series of children's books. She is aimed at conservative families. Uh, the series that she has created called Heroes of Liberty, uh, that is Miss Mandel's new line of children's books called Heroes of Liberty, features a roster of luminaries uh, on the uh, political right. That so far includes, well, Alexander Hamilton, Ronald Reagan, John Wayne, and guess who? Yeah, that's right, Justice Amy Coney Barrett with a planned edition uh, featuring Margaret Thatcher soon to arrive. That's, that's a real murderous row. And in the case of some of them, it's like a literal murderous row. But uh, yeah, that... <laughs> Again, you know, I, I want you to take your grandkids into a bookstore, you know, after after Bethany Mandel has had her had her chance to write these incredible works, bring her bring them to a bookstore. Let them wander around and see if they they gravitate toward the Amy Coney Barrett book, uh, or if maybe they'll prefer the, the Margaret Thatcher one. We'll see. Um, or maybe they'll actually go to a book that has any appeal to uh, to children. We'll, we'll see how that, that works out, though. Look, it's interesting to me. I mean, I'm not surprised on the one hand that any of this has become some sort of, you know, marketing tool, you know, to, to spread a, say, let's say, a particular ideological yep. view uh, for, for kids. I mean, you know, we already have those things. That's, you know, the Boy Scouts, for example, of America, <laughs> uh -huh. you know. So, you know, it's not that this is somehow un unprecedented, but it's just interesting to me, you know, as as a reflection of our of our current state uh, of of uh, of affairs, you know, po politically and therefore historically, that we find this easy divide between you know conservative, liberal, right, and left, uh, as if you know this binary, right, you know, yeah. somehow mm -hmm. encapsulates all the you know potential meanings of something as messy. As, as the past. So I think, you know, it's sort of the problem isn't just so much that binary. The problem is the idea of heroes in the first place, isn't it? I mean, yes. are you sort of setting yourself up for a, a basic, uh, you know, hot mess when you do that? Well, yeah, isn't the old cliche, never meet your heroes? But I think the, the new cliche should be never read about your heroes either, right? Because hopefully if you read about your heroes, they, they'll cease to be heroes, I think. Um, because we're all, you know, kind of messy and, um, and contradictory and all this sort of stuff. I don't think Bethany, Man Bethany Mandel's version of, of uh, Margaret Thatcher is going to have the messiness that's inherent to any person's life or history for that matter. Um, and what it what it's left with, and then it's just pure, as you, as you suggested, just hero worship, um, an attempt to create role models for these young future fascists. Um, 
but but to, to assume that this is some kind of historical uh, work or or some kind of uh, salutary work is uh, pretty absurd. I would I would argue. Yeah, I think I agree. You know, and this idea that you can somehow indoctrinate kids with this sort of formulaic package of heroic, you know, individuals, uh, you know, written over in sort of serial form, you know, as part of a series, in other words, and that if they just, what, read enough of them, then they will grow up and function correctly themselves as modern adult conservatives or something. But I think, haven't we learned yet that that doesn't really work? You're just as likely you know, to create the kid who can't wait to go running and screaming away from, you know, his parents' orthodoxy or something? Well, and, I mean, the other thing that's funny here is that, like, the, the idea that, you know, there's, as you said, there's like a liberal conservative divide and um, liberals get their heroes and conservatives should have their heroes in the bookstore as well. We had this thing, uh, this was years ago, but there's a series of books called, um, I think they're called Who Is?, It'll be like who or who is Martin Luther King? Who is um, Stevie Wonder? One of my son always had the Stevie Wonder one. Who is we? And so one of them had uh, the one that was who is George Washington? It was just sitting like on our, you know, our front table or something like that in our living room. And we had a um, we had a contractor working on or putting doors in or something like that. And he became pretty clear. He worked for a few days. Pretty clear what his his uh, political proclivities were because he was listening to Rush Limbaugh the whole time on full volume, mm. but uh, he encountered this book. And for whatever reason, this caused him to lose his shit. He could not believe we had this book. He uh, you know, went into this whole screed about history and revisionism and all this stuff. It's like, you can't, you can't win with these people, right? If you can't have George Washington, not exactly a liberal hero at this, or maybe he is a liberal hero at this point, but if George Washington you know, doesn't even serve as kind of a neutral figure, in this guy's mind, then, I mean, we're going to have to have, you, you just, you can't win. Like you, so you'll, maybe you'll have your, your, um, uh, Margaret Thatcher book, your Ronald Reagan book, but it's, it's a, it's not that far to go from Margaret Thatcher and, and Ronald Reagan until you have your, you know, who, who is, uh, uh, George Wallace or something like that. That's that's a better one, right? Who is George Wallace, um, <laughs> as, as the next children's book to delight and educate the young ones. Yeah, you could go in some really pretty dark directions there, couldn't you? I mean, as long as we're trying to gin up heroes from the right, you yeah. know, like you say, you know, there there's some, uh, you know, there's some bodies buried out there. They're going to scare yeah. those little kids. But, uh, <laughs> Who well, is Auguste yeah. Pinochet? I, I I tend to agree. I mean, it's like you don't you don't you don't want to meet your heroes, right? I mean, look yeah. what's happened to you, Josh. You know, now that Matt Damon is doing crypto commercials, oh, no, no, rough on you, right? You promised you would not bring this up. No, that... <laughs> All right, it, it, on to the next subject. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Wait, no, no, no. I have to. I have to speak on this. I have to speak on this. If anybody's seen the the crypto.com commercial with Matt Damon, it is the uh, created in a lab to to make me angry. Um, beginning with these references to history, um, I think it literally has a picture of like the Santa Maria with a with a version of Columbus in front of it and talks about, you know, following your dreams or something like that. Um, so all these like kind of spurious historical historical connections ending with a quote, uh, I think he says, as the Romans say, um, you know, whatever the quote was, some dumb quote. Um, and then in the end it's about crypto, which is uh, my personal bet noir right now. 
Um, so yeah, some some uh, savvy marketing executive, you know, saw what I was searching on Twitter or something like that, and decided to create a commercial specifically to give me heart problems. But thank you for bringing it up. That, yeah, yeah, yeah well, you owe me. This is what I, I do usually owe. do to you. So I like yeah. enjoy you know enjoy turning the tables on you occasionally. Um, but you know we're living in a in a moment here, right, where history is being uh, peddled and marketed. Everything from you know kids' books uh, to uh, you know state boards of education, you know that are engaged mm -hmm. in this kind of reductionism, is what I think I would call it a kind of historical reductionism, which uh, leaves for history, you know, the exclusive responsibility for inculcating, you know, loyalty and, and patriotism, right? Loyalty to the right. state and the nation. And patriotism, all you know, all the while, sort of prescribing a certain kind of narrow, you know, let's say moral uh, code, you know, of things to live by, and so, uh, and then that under the general banner then of of you know of, of conservatism or whatever, but um, you know, we we sometimes we ask our students a question, say at the beginning of the, of the semester. I know I'm sure you've done this. I know we've we've talked about it. Uh, yeah. getting a lot of the same responses, right? When we, we, we ask our students, maybe the first day of class, um, you know, what, what's the point of taking a history class, you know, and, and never mind, well, it's, uh, you know, three units for graduation or yeah. general education. Which is graduation. the true answer for most of them, right? Yeah, right. But beyond that, you know, then what, you know, what is there? And I think you'd agree, right, that, that one of the most common responses, and, and, and it plays off a, a quote that's always attributed to the philosopher George uh, Santayana, uh, is that you take history, Josh, for what reason? Because those who don't know the past are doomed to repeat it. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't learn about the uh, past and particularly the mistakes made in the past, Mm -hmm. uh, then you're just going to, in somewhat imagined Groundhog Day-like fashion, you're just going to repeat it. So learning then this historical prescription uh, gives you the power to not make those same mistakes again. And, uh, well, okay, there's much that could be said about this, but I think you and I probably both agree that it's, generally speaking, uh, bollocks, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's such a poor description of what history is in so many ways, beginning, by the way, with the idea of knowing history as if it's a thing that you just know unambiguously, um, and then moving on from there to other problems. But that's that's one of the things that always stops my, me in my tracks, definitely. Yeah, it's also very, you know, reductionist that there's this kind of utilitarian, yes. you know, purpose that's fairly straightforward that, you know, line up the mistakes, memorize them and, you know, not repeat them. But I'm going to, I'm going to suggest, in fact, that that's not what actually happens when anybody studies history, particularly those of us in the modern age, living as we are under the regime of what we might call national histories, or even mm -hmm. uh, say imperial histories. Uh, I'm gonna suggest in fact, that those narratives are explicitly defined to get you to forget certain say mistakes in the past, so that, in fact, the nation state, the empire can 
wantonly repeat those mistakes going forward. Now, now listen, I don't know if that quite translates. So let me put it into a simple formula that uh, all you uh, shampoo users are familiar with. It's what I'm calling uh, historical shampoo directions. You ready? Here it goes. <laughs> Atrocity, memory, forgetting, repeat. Beautiful. What do you think? Yeah, that sums it up. I mean, because because yeah. what's you know the idea of mistakes the past the the problem is especially within national history that every mistake gets kind of retooled in the memory as an actual success in you know many cases right mm -hmm. um, it it becomes this moment of you know at, at at worst it's a moment that requires redemption and then the redemption comes at some later point at which point you don't have to think about the mistake quote unquote that had happened before. Um, it's all, uh, you know, it can all be cleansed, essentially, to use your 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 shampoo metaphor a little bit, bit more. Um, so we will never, you're right, you're absolutely right, we'll never learn from these mistakes as long as history is told in the way it, it has been told, at least in the popular imagination. Yeah, and again, by design, right? So that those yes. mistakes can be repeated, much like the directions on your shampoo bottle suggest, can be repeated ad infinitum you know, forever, mm -hmm. essentially, with a kind of built-in uh, forgetting mechanism that is part of the, uh, what we're going to call in today's episode, the kind of bewildering effect that these national imperial narratives have on us. And uh, we're going to talk about in today's episode some real, I, I think what by almost any definition would be considered real whoppers in the category of historical mistakes. That is tragic episodes that have occurred that uh, in the retelling become part of that process of memorializing, but then ultimately over time, uh, by degrees, a kind of forgetting, and then followed up in Groundhog Day fashion with a replay of the very events that were supposed to never be repeated. So today's episode, we have entitled Make the Ritual Last Forever. And Josh, I know you have a, uh, a bona fide historical anecdote that will illustrate both the meaning of that title and then uh, get into why it relates to what we're describing today. Absolutely. Let me let me read this to you all. Um, so this comes from an, uh, an 1852 um, account by a Wesleyan minister and missionary named Richard B. Leith who is traveling in, in Fiji. And so let me read what he, uh, what he observed. So in this Fijian kingdom of Kakadrove, there was a daily rule of absolute silence at sunrise. Then the king's herald would proclaim that he was about to chew his kava root, whereon all his subjects shouted, chew it. This was followed by a thunderous roar when the ritual was completed. The ruler was the son who gave both life and order to his people. He recreated the universe each day. In fact, most scholars nowadays insist this king wasn't even a king, but merely the head of a confederacy of chieftains who ruled over perhaps a few thousand people. Such cosmic claims are regularly made in royal ritual almost everywhere in the world, and their grandeur seems to bear almost no relation to a ruler's actual power, as in their ability to make anyone do anything that they don't want to do. If the state means anything, 
It refers precisely to the totalitarian impulse that lies behind all such claims, the desire effectively to make the ritual last forever. Now, uh, people who've been listening to me for the past few episodes know I've been uh, obsessively reading the uh, Wengro and Graber book, The Dawn of Everything, and pulling interesting stuff. This is something from that book that particularly struck me because it ties into a kind of broader project I've been thinking about, you know, since graduate school at least, which is the artifice of power, the degree to which power itself is less a, a physical manifestation and more of an ideological, or in this case, a ritual claim. And so this idea of this, this king who's not a king making claims to power that he can't actually hold up. And yet people still for that moment, you know, at that moment of sunrise, taking part in this, this ritual power, um, to me was so kind of edifying and connected so many things. But I'd like to hear what, what, what you think of this idea of, of, of the state and power um, as an attempt to make the ritual last forever. Well, first of all, I want us all to rise and remove our hats <laughs> for the singing mm -hmm. of God Bless America. Yep. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it gets to, you know, the heart of a lot of, of what we've been discussing, you know, throughout the, uh, the episodes. Um, because, in effect, you know, our modern world is in some ways just as that is, you know, say living in our nation state is, is just as predicated upon uh, everyone sort of suspending their disbeliefs and going through rituals, you know, as if they were real, you know, as if, yes. in fact, they they were exactly what they purported to be. And I know what you want to talk about, Josh, uh, is is why that can become so you know, really uh, damaging and 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 uh, keep us in effect in a in a state of, you know, suspended dis or suspended belief, where uh, you know the state then can continue to use its power, its actual power, you know, its on the ground power, say its military or policing power, you know, to continue to commit, you know, certain kinds of uh, atrocities. All, all the while, the and then the word we're going to use today, right, is bewildering. The bewildering yeah. power of that ritual, uh, whether it be a physical ritual or a spoken ritual or even a, a storytelling ritual, let's say, uh, yeah. while the bewildering power of that ritual, you know, keeps people from what uh, acting upon the tragic nature of of that power. Yeah, I mean, and seen through the artifice of it all, right, which is. You know, the idea kind of here is that the idea of making that ritual last forever is making sure that people don't see through the artifice, see the hollowness at the center of all this, this mm -hmm. stuff. And as long as you can keep them, you know, looking at the wrong thing or saying the right words at the wrong time, I'm sorry, at the right time um, or, or going about those those kind of daily activities that that support the artifice, um, then you can continue to hold on to power. Right. This king in uh, in in Cockadrove, you know, he has this one moment of glory in the morning and then, and then the. the the ritual ends and he goes back to just being some dude, you know, uh, going about his going about his day for modern yeah, states. Though, I, I, I'd yeah. be willing to bet because I don't know too much about the chewing of the root uh, and how it translates. But I'd be willing to bet in some way or another it has something to do with his virility or his power, whether it be over, you know, his fellow beings or the elements of nature or what have you. In other words, when, when we sing, 
uh, at baseball games, you know, yeah. talk about ritual upon ritual, you know, something like Irving Berlin's God Bless America. I mean, the, it's a it's a jingoistic song, right? It was a song that was written yes. during World War One uh, that, that, you know, not unlike many our own national anthem included, you know, attest to the power of the state in some fairly masculine or virile way to exercise that power and and if necessary rain down harm on our enemies or something but yeah. so yeah without well, that, that, about the, that particular yeah. ritual i would say i would venture to guess it has something to do with that yeah well you just reminded me because you know the, the idea of the song comes about you know in the context of world war one but when it really has this resurgence is after 9 11. i don't know if you remember this becomes particularly for you know for the new york teams um singing the, the, the god bless america during the seventh inning stretch i believe became this new ritual um, of, you know, post 9-11 America. Um, a song that for me actually didn't, wasn't that familiar with before, um, now became a, a central part of, of this ritual of, of, you know, the crowd collectively singing yeah. together um, at, at these games. So yeah, I'm glad you brought up the, the idea. The ritual yeah. that goes on forever, because even in the context of 9-11, right, the, the idea that the war on terror would be a forever war. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's job security for the folks who show up at baseball parks to sing that song during the seventh inning stretch, I guess. They'll have a job uh, forever. Yep. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the idea of bewildering and the bewilderers, because the other thing, that anecdote about, you know, the Fijian king, reminded me of is, is that th this idea we've discussed before uh, from Fr Franz Fanon about um, about the, the, the bewilderers who kind of make things work. And so he talks about in Wretched of the Earth on, in, in, a, in a chapter called On Colonial Violence. He says, in the capitalist countries, a multitude of moral teachers, counselors, and bewilderers separate the exploited from those in power. In the colonial countries, on the contrary, the policeman and the soldier, by their immediate presence and their frequent and direct action, maintain contact with a native and advise him by means of rifle butts and napalm not to budge. Um, and the, the idea here is, is, is so old, uh, you know, instantly powerful um, because it gets at this, this contrast that exists um, within the, the realms of power, right? The way that the, the home country is governed in a way that's constantly um again conjuring up these these illusions of power bewildering people to look in the wrong direction and not see what's right in front of them whereas in colonial countries uh the bewilders are less present um and instead absent that conjuring absent that artifice you get the real source of power the policeman and the soldier who maintain power not through illusions but through this direct violence now I would say that I'm not completely convinced uh, of the lack of bewilderers in the colonial context. I think for, for Fanon living in colonial Algeria at a time of probably the, the greatest violence, colonial violence, um, it certainly would have seen that way. Um, but I think there was a bewildering project going on in the colonies. And I think um, the story I wanna tell today is important because what it's kind of suggest is what happens when that bewildering presence, that artifice, those rituals of power when they fall apart. And so what I want to talk about today <clears throat> is uh, an event in the history of, of British India, which has been uh, talked about and used in, in many different contexts. Today, it's part of kind of the national story, a nationalist story of, of India. 
for the British, it continues to be this this kind of black mark on their history, one that they uh, evade and are embarrassed of and refuse to apologize for um, even 100 years later. And that is the uh, what's called the Amritsar Massacre of 1919. And I think I've mentioned this, this event before, but I do want to talk a little bit more about it uh, because of what it reveals about uh, the practice of power, the artifice of power, the ritual of power, and what happens when those rituals fall apart, what's left. And this is where we get back to Fanon. What's left is the policeman, the soldier, the rifle butt, and the napalm, at least uh, metaphorically. All right, let's start here, though. Um, the thing about the colonies, as I think uh, Fanon was, was, was discussing, is that violence was central to, to colonial rule. As the uh, historian Jordana Bal Belkin says, uh, there's nothing more, more banal about the colonial project than its violence, right? There's a daily violence in the colonial context that would have been pretty obvious to all those who took part in it. But I want to suggest that there's something different about a massacre, right? that a massacre reveals something that the daily acts of violence don't necessarily do. And so Amritsar and the events around April 13th, 1919, when the massacre actually occurred, as uh, were, as I suggest, extremely revealing. So let's let me quickly um, uh, narrate just the basic events here, and I'll get into some analysis as we go. So basically, in 1919, we're post World War One. Um, Indians have served a major role in the British victory. Uh, they have served both as laborers in the home front, as producers um, in India of needed supplies for the war effort. Uh, and of course, they have served as soldiers. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Indians served in the war and tens of thousands lost their lives. During the war, one of the great British fears was of rebellion, that rebellion in India would essentially undermine the war effort and potentially cause the British to lose the war. So during the war, we see a couple things happening in this relationship between the British and their Indian, Indian subjects. One thing is we see um, the imposition of not quite martial law, but certainly restrictive laws, right? So Indians' rights to uh, freedom of speech, to assembly, like kind of basic rights that, that for British people, for Americans, for people living in the kind of liberal democracies around the world would have seen as quote unquote natural rights. These things are abrogated certainly during the war, right? So these harsher laws, these more restrictive laws are placed upon Indians. But the other thing that happens is it suggests at least um, implicitly, if not explicitly, that in return for supporting the war effort, um, the British would consider some measures to give some manner of control to Indians over their own country at war's end, right? So in other words, if Indian nationalists who had begun, you know, becoming more active and engaged and disruptive, if they kind of set aside those, those, those actions during the war years, then there would be some rewards coming when the war came to an end. So 1919 then, the war is over. The British along with their allies have won and Indians begin looking around and wondering where their reward is going to, when their war uh, reward is going to arrive. Instead, what happens is the imposition of what become known as the Rowlett Acts, um, sometimes called the Black Acts by Indians. The Rowlett Acts were essentially a continuation of, of these uh, wartime laws that restricted Indian freedoms. By 1919, 
uh, Mohandas Gandhi is back in India. And he is at that point, mostly a, a regional figure. He has some national prominence certainly, but he's essentially organizing mostly um, in his home region of Gujarat. Um, with the coming of the Rao Act, though, Gandhi's um, fame began to grow as he called for a nationwide and imperial-wide, at the very least, uh, campaign of Satyagraha. All right, this is his tactic of nonviolent resistance. So all over India, um, people took up this call of Satyagraha, and they began organizing meetings and boycotts and work stoppages um, in opposition to the Raudaks. In the territory of the Punjab, um, an area which was uh, ruled with a particularly heavy fist by, by the British, there were a series of meetings and demonstrations, and then um, days and days of what are called hartal, which is essentially work stoppages where people just would not go out to their businesses, wouldn't go to the markets, wouldn't uh, purchase anything from the stores. It was basically a shutdown of all economic activity within the city. Um, Gandhi himself was supposed to come to the Punjab, but at, as he was on his way there, he was stopped by British authorities and essentially sent back home. So he was prohibited from showing up in uh, the Punjab and specifically now in the city of Amritsar. So Amritsar, within Amritsar, we see the emergence of two particular nationalist leaders. Um, I will provide their names, but we don't need to worry too much about them. Their importance is mainly uh, what's gonna happen in their disappearance. These two men are, are both doctors, Kichlu and Sachapal. Kichlu and Sachapal are very active and engaged nationalist leaders. As I said, the leaders of the Satyagraha campaign, these Hartals in, uh, in, in Amritsar, and the British fearing uh, this organization, invite them to the commissioner's bungalow, uh, where they are promptly arrested and deported. All right, so these are two men who have not been charged with a crime, by the way, uh, but they've been essentially kidnapped and sent away. The rest of the uh, organizing committee in Amritsar, those who are working with and, and under Kitchlun Sachapal, now organize a mass demonstration. And what they want to do is engage in a kind of traditional technique of petitioning. Uh, petitioning was something that had gone back, you know, deep into the Mughal Empire. And even under British rule, petition continued to be a relatively legitimate form of, of um, engagement with the state. So uh, the leaders in Amritsar uh, began marching through the town as they marched through Amritsar on their way to what are called the civil lines, which is where the British lived apart from the city, away from the native town. They picked up more and more numbers. Um, and so uh, by the time they reached the civil line, you had a crowd of thousands uh, who were going to break into what we can call the sacred space of the civil lines, this kind of imaginary boundary that marked the distinction between the rulers and the rule, the colonized and the colonizers. Um, with only a token uh, force in Amritsar, uh, the available soldiers rallied. Um, they stood on the bridge that separated the civil lines from the town. And when the crowd continued to, to uh, try to push forward, eventually, as you might imagine, the soldiers got spooked and they began to fire. Now, the, the, the death toll in this initial wave of violence was not huge, but certainly um, probably, you know, dozens of people were, were injured and um, some number were also killed. Some, some number less than that were probably killed. As a result of this firing of this violence, the crowd, which had been largely peaceful, 
who had been engaged in what they saw as a legitimate political activity now turned into a, a, a riot, right? At least for the, from the British perspective, a riot and, uh, and a mob. They began rampaging throughout the city where they attacked what they saw as the symbols of British power. That meant the telegraph office, uh, which was attacked and destroyed, Tel telegraph lines were ripped up. Uh, they tried to go after the railway station as well, but were uh, essentially pushed back from there. They, and, and they then turned into the central city where they went after the city hall. And then in particular, they went after the two main banks in town. The banks were obviously not part of British governance, but they certainly were seen as representative of British power. Uh, the crowd burst the doors, which had been locked and barricaded. They burst through, stormed through the buildings, found the uh, the, the British men inside, and um, beat to death a few of these these bankers inside. In addition, um, a European missionary, a woman who had been um, uh, in the city when this all broke out, not aware anything was going on, was riding back home on her bike when she was encountered by the mob. She was pulled off her bike and she was beaten severely, not killed, but beaten severely. Eventually, um, the situation cooled. People went back to their homes, uh, but the banks had been destroyed. As I said, the telegraph lines had been ripped up. The telegraph office had been destroyed and people had been killed. Uh, British people had been killed along with Indians um, in this outbreak of violence. Certainly not what, what Gandhi had in mind with this campaign. Um, but this is how it worked out. Now, one way to see this is as a brief burst of, of violence caused by the um, actions of the British standing at that bridge, trying to defend their civil lines they sought from what they already saw as a mob, despite the fact that it was peaceful. Um, but for the British, this was something more, all right? Not just a momentary eruption of disorder, but the, the, the precursor they sought to um, a revolution, to a rebellion. And so what they did then is called in more troops um, and then imposed upon the Indians a series of even more restrictive laws. These laws, uh, or rules at least, were meant to essentially reestablish the, the, the proper order within Amritsar. So for instance, a rule was put in place that any Indian uh, encountering a British person would have to do the salam. This was a, a, a kind of greeting that was meant uh, to be done by an inferior to a superior. And anybody who didn't do the salam could be arrested. And if they were arrested, they would likely be beaten, sometimes tortured um, and sometimes thrown in jail. And then even more uh, um, egregious is the British began setting up the essentially whipping post throughout the town um, where Indians who were arrested for whatever reason could be tied to the post and then publicly beaten and whipped in sight of others. And then even more egregiously, uh, the place where this British woman had been attacked and beaten was essentially created as a sacred space, a sacred place of, of memory, we might say, for the British. Um, Indians were told they were not allowed to walk down the street where the attack had occurred. The problem was that um, many Indians lived on the street. Many, many residents of Amritsar lived on the street. Uh, there were many uh, houses whose doors open out into the street and Indians, uh, you know, rightfully complained that if they couldn't go out on the street, they literally could not either get home or they could not leave their homes. And so the general in charge here, a guy named R.H. R.E.H. Dyer, uh, decided that they could walk down the street, but only if they crawled. 
And so for a few days, this became the reality that any Indians leaving their house on this particular block or trying to come home were forced by British soldiers who were stationed there to crawl on hands and knees down the street until they passed out of this sacred zone. Um, on April 13th, so the original riot had occurred on April 10th. On April 13th, uh, General Dyer, who was still assured, still certain that a, a vast conspiracy was at hand, that a revolution was about to occur, decided to take his troops and march them into the city um, to, uh, to announce a new order. All right, so this is April 13th, in the morning of April 13th. He marches with a, uh, a calm of troops. He leaves some troops guarding the main gates into the city. The rest march through. And every time uh, they stop, they make this announcement that it would be here for, uh, heretofore illegal for any or Indians to organize into groups. Right? So you're not allowed to have any meetings uh, with multiple individuals. And if they were found meeting, if they were found organized in this fashion, there would be reprisals by Dyer and uh and the, and the british indian army now there's a lot of confusion about this um both by historians and people at the time um it's pretty clear that a lot of indians had no idea what was going on uh that they couldn't hear the orders as they were shouted out um and they didn't understand the orders even when they could hear them because they were often translated into a language they didn't understand in, in, in some cases uh dyer himself uh found the whole thing humiliating because he said as he marched the streets uh, he said Indians were laughing at him. He saw Indians spitting on the ground as he was speaking. And so although he had tried to restore order, he came away from the whole experience further humiliated by the lack of, um, we'll call it ritual obeisance on the part of, of the Indians. At the same time that Dyer was making this announcement, nationalist leaders in Amritsar were making another announcement that there would be a meeting that day in this kind of central uh, open space in the city of Amritsar a place called the Jallianwala Bagh. Jallianwala Bagh is often referred to as a garden, uh, but it really was not a garden. There was virtually nothing growing there. It was just a huge dirt patch um, within the city, surrounded on four sides by, by buildings. Um, there was one central entrance, and then um, there were other ways to get out, but there's one main way in, a very narrow alleyway. Um, but it was a place where people tended to congregate during the day, um, children would play there, and on this particular day of April 13th, there was a major uh, festival going on as well as a, um, uh, a cattle show. So there was lots of people in town from, from out the outside. Um, and Jallianwala Bagh was a, was a perfect place for people from outside the city to come and relax um, you know, during the heat of the day. In addition though, there was a meeting of Indian nationalists in, in Amritsar. Um, and people were invited to come hear speakers talk about the situation in the city. Um, so we don't know the numbers. Some people say that there was maybe 5,000 people in the Jallianwala Bagh. Others say it was maybe 15,000, 20,000. Um, it's probably somewhere in between those, those numbers. But Dyer um, in the afternoon got word that this meeting was happening and decided that he had to act. So he brought, uh, put together 50 troops uh, mostly Gurkhas, um, some Baluchis, two different ethnic groups within British India, in addition to some British soldiers and British officers, certainly as well. They marched to the city um, where they came in through this alley. Um, by coming through the alley, they blocked the exit 
And within 30 seconds of walking into Jolly and Wallet Bog, they began firing um, indiscriminately. Um, much of the crowd was less than 60 feet away from them. So it was almost as if they were shooting at point blank range. Um, and any account of, of Amritsar will also note the number of, of bullets fired. Um, I think the number is uh, 1,632. I might be off by a few there, but I believe that's that's a number. So basically 1,600 rounds of ammunition fired directly into a peaceful crowd, people simply enjoying their day, relaxing, um, or in the case of, of the nationalists, you know, hearing speeches, talking to each other, um, not rebelling, not committing violence, but merely conversing. In fact, when the troops first march in, the speaker on uh, on the uh, the platform didn't even really stop. He saw the British there, but just assumed that, of course, they're not going to just fire into the crowd, um, even despite the daily violence of colonial life um, that Jordana Abelikin talks about. It was simply assumed that a massacre of this of this scale would not happen. Um, and within 30 seconds, he was proved wrong. Um, it wasn't just indiscriminate violence. It wasn't just firing to the crowd, but uh, Dyer leading his troops was pointing them to fire in particular directions. So when people were trying to climb over the walls to escape, he ordered his troops to fire on those uh, climbing the walls. When they tried to jump in the well and swim to safety, he directed his troops to fire in that direction as well. And um, after 10 minutes of firing, uh, the order was finally given to halt. Um, and then Dyer and his 50 troops marched out of the Jallianwala Bog as quickly as they had entered. We don't know the number of dead. Uh, Dyer himself suggested, I think, uh, uh, 189, I think he said. I don't know how he would have known that, but he suggested 189. Um, some Indian observers suggested thousands. Um, and then official reports by, uh, by India, uh, Indian National Congress um, uh, investigation put the number that they could verify at least somewhere between 400 and 500, which is the number that we generally are going to accept. And then in addition to that, there's probably maybe thousands more, uh, you know, a thousand more who were injured. Um, in fact, people were so cl closely packed together that bullets would sometimes pass through one pe person and hit others. Um, mostly the crowd was made up of men um, because uh, men were more likely to engage in this kind of public, um, uh, these kind of public activities, but there were also lots of children in the uh, John Wall Bog as well. Um, so most of the killed, most of the wounded were men and boys who had come there for various reasons. All right. Well, thanks for setting up the story there, Josh, of what is remembered in history as uh, as a massacre. Uh, I, I remember reading Kurt Vonnegut one time, uh, in, I think it was Slaughterhouse-Five, he said, there's there's nothing intelligent to say about a massacre. Um, in other words, the bottom line is pretty clear, right? Uh, but uh, I know you have a lot to say about it, particularly how the event was then part of this uh, colonial uh, effort at, at bewilderment, right? That we were uh, that we were discussing earlier, uh, and thus how its its memory, in some basic way, uh, was divorced from you know the actual human uh, cost of it, right? Yeah, I mean, I hope I have something intelligent to say. I hope I can I can prove Vonnegut wrong a little bit here and say something intelligent. We'll see about that. Uh, future historians what we'll say for sure, but. So the thing about this violence is that it was on a scale that was not, let's be clear, it was on a scale that was not normal, even in a colonial context. Now, colonial massacres happen, certainly. Um, 
colonial massacres happen particularly on the borders of empire. We can say this at least about the British Empire that there tended to be more violence the closer the boundaries and the borders you got. This was right in the center of, of the empire. Um, so while there was something unique about this, right, to the extent that you know the speakers in Jallianwala Bagh, when they saw planes flying over earlier in, in, in the in the afternoon, they 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 quieted the crowd. They said, "There's no way they're going to drop bombs on us, right? They would never do that." Not knowing that that actually was had been a plan for for a while is to actually literally just bring in bombers and drop bombs on any on any crowds they saw. Um, and then when the troops themselves walked in, um, the the speaker assumed there's no way they're going to fire upon us. They can't possibly do that. They would they would not do this. This gets us back to this ritual, right? Now, again, what what um, Fanon was was suggesting is that there doesn't have to be a ritual of power in the colonies because that's what the, the police officer and the soldier is about. I would say that that is not totally the case. Now, I would argue that the rituals of power in empire are primarily meant for, um, you know, and we'll talk just specifically about India here. They're meant for those, those Anglo Indians, right? The British residents in India who wanna be assured that they're there for good reasons, that they're engaged in something that's inherently moral, um, that they're good people even though they're in a situation which can seem, um, uh, you know, uh, barbarous at times. It's also meant for the domestic audience back home who can be assured that their country, their nation is part of this progressive story of, of history, right? That they have figured out, you know, how to create civilization at home and now they're magnanimously bringing civilization abroad. But there's an extent to which the rituals of power, the artifice of power, the bewildering that goes into power also worked upon Indians because we know there's, you know, just on the, the purely functional level, the British Empire doesn't work without literally thousands, maybe tens of thousands of British clerks, I'm sorry, Indian clerks, Indian judges, Indian revenue officials, and then of course, hundreds of thousands of troops from throughout South Asia. Remember that the massacre itself had mainly been committed by uh, soldiers who were you know, from one part of British India or another. So people have to be believing in something to take part in this, you know, beyond just a simple fact that wherever there's power, there will be those who are willing to serve it. In addition to those kind of formal functionaries of power, there are all kinds of Indians, largely from the middle and upper classes, who came to see um, the British presence as, um, you know, its, its own form of kind of redemption, right? They bought into the British view that that um, India had been savage and barbarous, and that only through the civilizing project could India be brought out of that savagery, brought out of that uh, barbarousness into modernity, into civilization. And this is why we have so many prominent Indians, you know, who go and get a, a formal Western education, whether it's in, you know, Calcutta, in Bombay or Madras, but also back in the imperial metropole itself, in universities in, in, in Britain. Um, this is why they, you know, speak English even amongst themselves, because ultimately the vision they've been sold on what power is and what it was for is something that they that that is appealing to them. Right. Um, so there is a bewildering aspect going on. There is a ritual going on that it's not just about, you know, convincing British people that they're actually good when they're clearly doing something bad. Um, this is something real. So while the violence. Um, in British India may have been so ubiquitous as to be banal, um, you know, ubiquitous enough and small enough in scale that even these Western educated English speaking Indians 
could always kind of assume that, well, the, you know, the empire is here for good reasons, even if there are bad acts committed by its local representatives, right? This, you know, there's, a, there's enough there that the ritual, the bewildering, the artifice there to allow people that, that kind of breathing room to say, yes, they're doing bad things, but there's probably a good cause in here in, in, in the end. All right. So, as I said, while the violence in general may have been so ubiquitous as to be banal, a colonial massacre was disruptive in a way that that kind of daily violence wasn't. And it was disruptive specifically because of what it revealed. Right. We go back to our story of the king of Cockadrove, right, uh, doing this daily ritual. Imagine that he's standing before his subjects to greet the rising sun and no one paid him any, paid him any attention. All right. What would he be at that point if he's just some dude chewing on a kava root? in front of an assembled crowd who's going about their business. He would cease to be the avatar of the sun at that point and would just be a sad old man chewing on a root. And I, I think that's a, a, a useful way of thinking about power in this case as well, that up to the point of, we'll say April 10th, the riot itself, the British could believe that they were that king of Cockadrove, right? Engaging in these daily rituals that people were buying into. But the events of April 10th, the riot that, that ensued on April 10th seemed to represent the breakdown of that ritual or sacred order that was supposed to be holding the empire together, right? You think about all the things that were breached on April 10th. We first saw that sacred boundary between the Indian town and the civil lines. Now, obviously this is, there's an extent to which that's an actual boundary. There's a bridge that separates them, that sort of thing. But in, in the end, there was nothing inherently to stop an Indian from crossing that boundary other than the fact of that that idea of the ritual space, right? Remember back to our last episode, you know, the idea of, of the ritual, the idea of the sacred was something that cannot be touched. And we get that real sense in the British attitude that the assumption was that this was something that could not be, that could not be touched, right? That this was our space, not their space, and, and it could not um, be um, gotten past. So we have that sacred boundary between the Indian town and the civil lines. We have what are essentially the sacred monuments of British rule, right? In the same guise as, you know, a pyramid or, uh, you know, a, a, a tomb or something like that in some uh, other state, right? So we have there the banks, the telegraph office, the railway lines, which are all essentially standing as the physical symbols of this British, British ritual power, right? The entire basis of British power, the entire claim to power was about progress and civilization. And what better is going to represent progress and civilization than banks, telegraphs, and railways, the gifts of empire. These are the things that are often said as you know, the gifts of empire. And yet here we have the Indians refusing to believe in their sacredness, breaching the doors of those banks, ripping out the telegraph lines and attacking the, rail, uh, the railway station. And obviously most, most importantly, we have uh, this, the most sacred thing of all, the bodies of the British. Um, and in particular, in this case, British womanhood, right? Because it's the attack on this, this missionary woman, uh, which caused the greatest uh, reaction on the part of the British. Yeah, I almost could see where you're going with that one, Josh, because it, it occurred to me that that, that sort of ritual of, of purity uh, was also very much present in the exercise of power, you know, in the, in, in the US, right? With Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. sort of the image of the, the white damsel, you know, who is mm -hmm. set upon by the uh, colored rapist, be he black or brown or native, what have you, uh, and that it was that violation 
that ritual violation that was then used as a pretext for all manner of uh, uh, destructive power, including most famously, you know, seven or eight decades worth of, of lynching in the South, right? Because yes. most, most lynch mobs, you know, justified their actions by saying that the, uh, the offending person had, uh, you know, violated that line, that boundary of sacred white uh, womanhood. It was almost uh, never true, but right up to the time of Emmett Till, right in, in 1954, yes. that was nevertheless the, uh, the rationale given. Now, I'm really glad you brought that up because, <clears throat> you know, one thing that I ultimately want to get to here, and we, we've talked about this idea of comparison, you know, as an historical tool before, but I, I don't think it's enough to just say this is a comparison. I, what I want to suggest is what you're saying here is the exact same thing as what we're seeing in the context of uh, British India, that this is the same impulse um, of power that's become global in many ways, right? Um, that you can find it in this, this context of, of, you know, the American South or the American North for that matter, in Jim Crow. You can find it in the context of Amritsar. You can find it, you know, you can find actually, um, there's British propaganda posters from the beginnings of World War One as they're trying to really rally people to the idea that British should go to war um, that a lot of the propaganda focuses on the uh, uh, on, on German sexual assaults of, of Belgian women. And there's one poster I'm thinking of where essentially the suggestion is this has happened to Belgian women and we could be next. Our women could be next. Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, if you want to stand up for your country, right, then it, it's necessary to go to war to keep this this outcome from happening. Um, and, and I think we need to be more attuned to this this idea that. Um, that there is this kind of global culture of domination, this global culture of, of, of ritual certainly, but also violence uh, when those ritual, uh, when those rituals kind of fall apart, right? Because what we see here is that when the ritual fails, when the rituals of power cease to seem real enough to the subject, in this case, the residents of Amritsar, what's left is is the violence. What's left is the humiliation, right? In the form of lynching, right? Lynching is not just a way of killing somebody. It's a way of basically ritually humiliating someone, even as, as you're killing them as well. And what we see so much within this kind of post-April 10th Amritsar is, again, violence, certainly. Um, you know, what, what um, Fanon called, you know, the rifle button and napalm. Um, you see that. You see uh, arrest. You see, uh, uh, you know, kind of sexualized assaults on, on Indian men within police stations, torture, um, you know, uh, extrajudicial murder. Um, arrest and deportations, all that kind of stuff, but also all this humiliation that goes on as well. Um, Dyer himself, Dyer himself notes later on, you know, he's eventually forced to, to kind of testify, never arrested, but he's at least going to be censured. And he essentially says in a very pathetic piece, he says, yeah, I could have, I could have marched in there and not fired. Certainly that would have been a pretty easy thing to do. But he says, if I had done that, they would have laughed at me. And I would have made a fool of myself, right? And so his desire to shoot uh, became a way of salvaging his own, I guess, manhood, um, his own sense of power, um, and his own sense that, you know, as a British man, as, as one who sits at the top of these rituals of power, it was his right, not just his right, but his duty um, to kill those who hadn't learned the proper lessons of power. There's so many quotes by so many different British people, both in India and back home in Britain. Um, who paint this as a sad, uh, you know, as a sad moment, right? Something that we wish this hadn't have happened, and yet it was necessary. This was exemplary violence, as some people said, 
a term that I also have seen in multiple places, it was salutary violence. It was violence that was there to teach a lesson. Um, and, you know, what we're seeing here is that, you know, as I suggested a second ago, where the rituals of power fall apart, what's left is the, um, the you know, the, 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 the violence that power can enact upon people. Now, ideally, you don't have to enact that kind of violence. Ideally, the rituals hold, uh, the sacred spaces hold, but where they don't, the next step is going to be that violence. Um, as Kim Butler, who wrote a, an amazing book on Amritsar has, has written, that what Amritsar represented, what the, um, what the riots represented and what the ultimately the massacre represented is that it was an implicit admission of colonial failure, however brief, that caused such an outcry and embarrassment, right? So essentially the reason why the reaction was the way it was on the part of the British was because this was an implicit admission of failure. It might've just been a moment, but there's a reason why there was such an outcry, so much embarrassment, you know, guy are saying they were gonna laugh at me. Um, because essentially what happened is, as Butler continues, the pretenses of the civilizing mission were momentarily cast aside and the brute power of the colonial project revealed in all its bloody glory, all right? So what we see here then in the end is what was always lurking behind the colonial project, which is that threat of retributive violence, of exemplary violence, of salutary violence, when the normal order of things, the rituals, the sacred spaces fail to hold up to scrutiny. So once you see through those rituals, um, what you're often gonna see on the other side are the gun butts and the napalm. Um, and I just wanna maybe end here with a quote from, um, from somebody who was actually in Amritsar. This is a, uh, a man named Dr. Mani Ram. He was a, uh, a dental surgeon in Amritsar. Um, he was not present at Jalanwal Bagh, uh, but his son, Madan Mohan, who was 13 years old, uh, would often go to the Jalanwal Bagh to play. And so on April 13th, he, along with his playmates, I'm quoting from Mani Ram now, he, along with his playmates, um, he says, used to visit this open square for play almost daily. On the 13th of April, uh, he went there as usual and met his tragic end. Having been shot in the head, which fractured his skull, he bled and died instantaneously. I, with eight or nine others, had to search for about half an hour till I could pick up his corpse, as it was mixed with hundreds of dead bodies lying in heaps there, who met their respective ends under circumstances well known. This is how my innocent child of innocent age was murdered by those who alleged they acted in the name of justice, law, and order. Now, I don't know that much about Mani Ram prior to this. Um, I don't know if he was political. I don't know how he viewed the, uh, the, the empire and the British in general. But what we're seeing here and what this quote suggests is that in these acts of intensive violence, um, the artifice falls apart. And for lots and lots of Indians who maybe had been okay going along with this system, um, you know, up until that point, what Amritsar revealed is the hollowness of this type of power, that the claims of justice, law, and order could not be believed in any longer um, as you, you know, sorted through bodies searching for your missing son. Um, and, you know, again, what I want to suggest here as I, as I finish up is that we need to be able to see the links between the exercise of power.
Um, I, I think, I, you know, I was, I was, I've been thinking about this. In many ways, I think, you know, these kind of massacres, these kind of colonial massacres are kind of, um, you know, I just said we shouldn't do too much comparing. We should actually see these things as the same process. But you've talked a lot about, about um, you know, slave rebellion and the use of slave rebellion, or, or maybe we'll say the disappearance of slave rebellions from accounts of, of the 19th century. Um, and I think those slave rebellions kind of uh, exist in a similar space as these kinds of, of, of massacres in the, in the sense that they're kind of embarrassing for both sides. Um, and they're embarrassing specifically because what they do is they erode the preferred narrative. All right, the British want to present the narrative that um, they came to India, which was in shambles, which was chaotic, which lacked law and order, was riven by violence and communal tensions. And that what they did is they brought order, they brought justice, they brought peace, and they brought civilization. But every time one of these things happens, one of these massacres happens, um, what it does is erodes that story. And you've, you've talked about this with, with this, the slave rebellions, um, but there's a reason why those rebellions don't really show up in sources. They don't really show up in histories until pretty well into the, in the 20th century. Isn't that right? Yeah. And in the case of the United States, they're, they're really only footnotes you know, to the big main stage story, right? And they're, and they're usually presented yeah. as something vaguely criminal and therefore illegitimate. Right. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is something else you've talked about, like, you know, what is legitimate political behavior and what's illegitimate political behavior? You know, for, for Indians, it was literally the case that, um, you know, especially under the auspices of this, you know, martial law in, in Amritsar and then more broadly, you know, the Raudaks themselves, um, it was explicitly stated by by a British judge in India that there was no legitimate reason he saw for any Indian to give a political speech, right? Um, and so if you are going to cut off these legitimate forms of political activity, you know, then what it leaves is, is you know, the events of Amritsar, right? Remember, the whole thing starts with an attempt to engage in politics in a peaceful manner. You know, petitioning power is one of the oldest forms of engaging with, with power. And when that's denied, what you get is, um, is, is, you know, the events that are going to come after. In the case of slave rebellions, as you've talked about, you know, uh, you know, enslaved people are, are almost always written out of the story of American politics. Right? But what slave rebellions represent, as is, is I think you would argue, is an act of, of, of politics, right? Yeah, very much so. In a different sphere, a different political sphere than the kind yeah. of formal, regimented political governing of, say, the British Empire, or uh, you know, or, or say the formal legislative governing power of of the American states, or before then the colonies. Uh, that's not where the, the the politics of the subaltern play out. The politics of the enslaved, the politics of the colonialized people, it plays out in a much more personal sphere of lived experience, what I, you know, I like to call self-sovereignty, where the actions of people who are denied any formal channels of political redress, you know, through say voting or right. office holding or, or having the kind of influence, political influence, you know, say lobbying influence, uh, that denied those formal channels of political redress, then have to uh, really fall back on, on the much more uh, kind of primordial uh, political redress of self-sovereignty, which means often gathering together in large numbers, using their bodies, uh, you know, as Gandhi 
uh, taught, you know, uh, in, in yep. you know, soul for such a grand weight of numbers uh, to impress upon the political system. But it's always directed. And that's the thing, Josh, I appreciate you mentioning this, because those actions, even if it's just a crowd or or a mob, as it might be disparaged or slave rebels, what have you, you know, uh, is always an act of redress against power, right? Absolutely. And, and, and it's a it's the specifically, you know, it's the space that power gives them, right? That I mean, that's the ultimate thing. It's like, we see all these examples in India of, of Indian nationalists who are very moderate, right? That they want to, you know, stand up to the system using constitutional means, right? They want to go through the structures of power and they keep being denied that. They keep being told that you, you know, there's no space for you here. Um, and if you keep closing off the spaces where people can act, you know, in the forms of, of politics that are considered legitimate, then there's nowhere else to go but into these, you know, mobs or riots or, you know, even just meetings in, in some cases that are then going to be um, in our history books are going to show up in, in, you know, as you were saying about slave rebellions as somehow illegitimate um, or uh, uh, or just not mentioned mentioned at all, right? So you, you always going to need to think about the spaces that are uh, even allowed for politics to various people. Um, and, and I think that's more revealing than, than just suggesting politics is this thing. And by this thing, it always means politics as um, is operated by, you know, white elites. Um, and, and, you know, as I think you've really eloquently argued, um, both on the podcast and just in our own conversations, that there's other spaces of politics other than those, you know, white elite politics that, that we're told about so much, we read about so much, and are so central to our stories about who and what we are. Yeah, it's really well said. I mean, otherwise, it's what we were saying earlier about these histories being so reductionist, so as to see, say, legitimate political behavior only in the actions of those, usually men, uh, often in the Western tradition, white men of power who end up in what conservative uh, bookstores for children to read about or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the only proper sphere of politics. So anyone outside that proper sphere who, who manages to make a claim against it is thereby dismissed in the narrative as somehow uh, illegitimate. Yeah, and there's more to say about this, but let's let's head to our, our last segment here. And I think you're gonna regale us with, with a concept I really like, uh, what you're calling historical narcissism. Yeah, thank you. And I was taken by what you said about when the bewildering spell is broken. Yeah. Uh, the folks on the ground, you know, the folks, uh, the, the, you know, the Indian, the colonized Indian people or the enslaved uh, people of colonial America or later, uh, you know, in the national era of the United States of America, uh, any, any number of, 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 of oppressed or marginalized subaltern peoples, they're the first to understand that that spell has been broken. You know, Josh, a while back, it's been several episodes now, we used was one of the great James Baldwin quotes. And it occurred to me as you mm. were talking about that you know, breaking of the bewildering spell. Baldwin wrote, the American Negro has a great advantage of having never believed that collection of myths to which white Americans cling. 
that their ancestors, you know, were all freedom loving heroes, that they were born in the greatest country the world has ever seen, or that Americans are invincible in battle and wise in peace. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? I think James, the, for James Baldwin, that spell of bewilderment was pretty much uh, broken. It's perfect. And it's so revealing, really. Um, because, you know, what, what I think we see here is that, the, you know, I've been talking about these rituals of power, right? These rituals are supposed to, you know, convince people that the people at the top are the, the manifestation of the sun or, or whatever other version of that that is. But what's really important to understand about the colonial context, but I think also our own national context is who those rituals were for, who was supposed to believe them and who wasn't. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, what, what Baldwin is making clear is that these, these rituals, these, these things we say, never really made much sense to us. Um, there was no bewildering that was even being attempted in this case. Um, and uh, and I, I think it, it really does does reveal, I, and maybe going back to our, our uh, you know, the original um, uh, uh, story I was telling, you know, this Wesleyan minister who's there, he's watching this ritual happen, but it's never assumed that he's supposed to take part in this ritual. Um, and I, I think American history makes a lot more sense, US history makes a lot more sense. If we, if we don't start with the assumption that this story was meant for everybody. Um, it was meant to exclude a lot of people. Um, and, and uh, you know, what Baldwin is saying is, is uh, that exclusion actually has, almost creates its own superpower, right? They get to see through the artifice. They get to see through these attempts at rituals um, and they see what, what's really there. Now, what's really there is often very ugly, um, but they're seeing a reality that, that many other people are, uh, are having hid hidden from them. Yeah, and I tell you, you know, getting this idea of historical narcissism, you know, what we're talking about here is how these rituals and and in this case, how these historical narratives that are part of a kind of national ritual, you know, from the time we're kids in school learning, you know, the, the filial pietistic history of founding fathers, you know, the, mm -hmm. the saluting of the flag and even the standing up at baseball games, you know, how historical narratives themselves are part of that sense of ritual. So for historical narcissism, and you're, and you're right, I think there's a kind of exclusivity. There's a sense that some people really belong in the story uh, and that many others don't. But, you know, what we've seen is so interesting in our own time here because, you know, with a project like the 1619 Project would receive such wide, uh, such a wide audience, right, through the New York Times uh, and then through the, the kind of conduit of, of political talk in this country, of, of, you know, educational materials in the schools, that the 1619 Project really you know, that that cause and effect that that for every action, there's a reaction, you know, really spurred a kind of reaction from the right to double down on this, uh, this narrative, this this national narrative, uh, but had to do it not just in the old way, like you say, I mean, you know, the older books, they just wouldn't mention these things at all. You know, yeah. the, the tragedies just didn't get in. Uh, but it was hard now to put the genie back in the bottle considering you have, among other things, this extraordinary uh, narrative of the 1690 Project, which puts, you know, the lived experience of Black people front and center in the narrative. So it's harder to hide. You would have to be a David Copperfield type to make, what, the, the pyramids disappear <laughs> or something? I forget. Yeah. Was that, is that what he did? Uh, something it's, like that's, that. 
a tall order, right? So what I've noticed is a certain kind of historical narcissism. It's not just the, the right wing in America, but also those who consider themselves sort of liberal progressive historians as well. And I'll get to in a second, but let me define historical narcissism for you, because this is now where folks have no real choice but to acknowledge the tragedy. Let's say, mm -hmm. let's acknowledge the, uh, the massacre, okay? Um, historical narcissism is when owning, and this is something you and I just kind of cooked up, right? When in our we were converse, uh, conversation yesterday, historical narcissism. Don't go looking for it in your uh, your your uh, encyclopedias. <laughs> it's not uh, in the index now. I, I'm getting you to copyright it though. Historical narcissism, when owning up to the terrible things you've done, actually makes you feel better about yourself because of how magnanimous you are in acknowledging them. And it's that acknowledgement and feeling of being magnanimous, therefore, that is more important than the actual tragedy itself. What do you think? Yeah, that's great. I love it. I, I mean, I can I, I can go further on that if you if you want. I know you got some quotes, but can I give you a, a Churchill quote that just speaks to that perfectly? Yeah, why not? One of our favorite narcissists, Winston Churchill. Absolutely. Yeah. So so Churchill, you know, famously um, is one of the the figures who who. Uh, who renounces Dyer and, you know, speaks to the brutality of, of Amritsar. He's unwilling to, you know, accept it as, as legitimate. And so he gets up in the House of, of Commons on July 8th, uh, 1920. And he said, what happened at Jallianwalabagh was, quote, an episode which appears to me to be without precedent or parallel in the modern history of the British Empire. It is an event of an entirely different order from any of those tragical occurrences which take place when troops are brought into collision with the civil population. It is an extraordinary event, a monstrous event, an event which stands in singular and sinister isolation. So this is often, you know, brought brought to bear, and you know, in burnishing Churchill's reputation. Um, this is, you know, part of the legend of, of Churchill that he's standing up, taking this unpopular position among his conservative peers. Um, but later in the speech, he says, and this gets to that narcissism part. Uh, governments who have seized upon power by violence and by usurpation have often resorted to keep what they have stolen. But the august and venerable structure of the British Empire, where unlawful authority descends from hand to hand and generation after generation, does not need such aid. Such ideas are absolutely foreign to the British way of doing things. Um, as Kim Butler later points out, literally um, just a few months later, he would initiate the indiscriminate policy of brutal reprisals, reprisals in Ireland and oversaw the violent suppression of unrest elsewhere in the empire. So even when he's, you know, speaking up against this, this colonial massacre, he's using it as a way of burnishing the British reputation. That the reason why this needs to be uh, spoke, spoken up about is because it's going to stand in the way of, of the true nature of the British empire, which was always a force of civilization, never one that used violence and usurpation in the manner of the Prussians, as you might say. Um, and uh, and so so even the massacre becomes you know, in many ways, a feather in the hat of, of the British um, because of it, it went specifically because it went against their nature, not because it represented something um, innate to the British. You know, it's awful hard to get a narcissist to ever admit having done wrong in the first place, Josh. It's a tall yes. order. But even if you can, even if the narcissist will finally acknowledge, somehow the narcissist is feeling aggrandized by how therefore magnanimous he or she is uh, in coming clean, as it were, 
And what gets lost, of course, is the, is the, the wrong itself. In the case of history, the tragedy itself somehow manages the meaning of it, manages to drop through the cracks. And what you're left with is, is Churchill sort of standing there, um, you know, congratulating himself in the British Empire on how, yeah. uh, you know, progressive and, and enlightened they are for, for acknowledging a one-off mistake or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So the example in the American history playbook is the American Revolution. It's the one that's been on my mind the most uh, recently. And, you know, what we call the consensus school in the writing of U.S. history uh, was uh, created mostly during the Cold War, a bunch of Ivy League historians who went back to the American Revolutionary era to find the freedom story, the kind of origin story of a freedom mm -hmm. story uh, that would define America in the Cold War as the defender of the free world vis-a-vis -vis the Soviets, right? Uh, and so it kind of created a pedigree that is the consensus school. And it was very, very influential and dominated a lot of the, you know, the publishing of academic history for the next, oh, you know, 40 years or so from the, uh, the time of the, the 1950s. And typically in that uh, narrative, the consensus school saw the American Revolution as a kind of watershed moment. Let me quote to you here from one of the, the deans of the Consensus School, our good friend Gordon Wood, whose book Radicalism of the American Revolution actually won a Pulitzer uh, in the early 90s. Uh, as it looks now, maybe that book was sort of the last sort of bold statement by the Consensus School, because what has happened since then, uh, as we'll see, has been a very different uh, kind of narrative direction. But what Gordon Wood wrote is that, quote, far from remaining monarchical, hierarchy-ridden subjects on the margin of civilization, Americans had become almost overnight the most liberal, the most democratic, the most commercially minded, and the most modern people in the world. That's Gordon Wood from his book, Radicalism of the American Revolution, attesting to the transformative effect now of the American Revolution as a kind of modern watershed moment on the forming of the national character. Now, what has happened since Gordon Wood's book is a, a much more uh, critical historiography that is writing about the American Revolution that, among other things, wants to broaden the sphere and be less reductionist. Because as we said a minute ago, these narratives, national and imperial narratives, tend to be very reductionist in terms of who gets into the story, often mm -hmm. men of power, uh, a certain racial caste, often white, etc. And so a lot of the uh, work done since uh, Gordon Wood has been to broaden the sphere then of the storytelling to include you know, varieties of other people, native peoples, enslaved African peoples, poor people, women, etc. cetera. Uh, one of those who've been in sort of the leading uh, wave of that new uh, historiography of the American Revolution has been a guy, Woody Holton, who we've mentioned also a few times before, who's now at the University of South Carolina, and whose recent book, Liberty is Sweet, has kind of encapsulated this more complicated view, if you will, of the American Revolution, certainly a more diverse cast of people and a number of, you know, sort of moral crossroads moments that might not actually withstand scrutiny under the old, more celebratory, triumphal view of the consensus historians. Now, one of those who has, has taken deciding with the consensus historians a kind of reaction to uh, the new wave has been Sean Wilentz, uh, a uh, longtime U.S. Uh, historian uh, based in Princeton, so that Ivy League 
sort of, uh, you know, was Kutchin uh, there uh, to, in his own way, kind of defend the consensus school. And in reviewing Woody Holton's book, which he didn't uh, particularly like a lot, Sean Wilentz said that otherwise, though, he, meaning Woody Holton, virtually says nothing about the pioneering American anti-slavery politics, the American anti-slavery politics that grew alongside the revolutionary movement outside the Lower South, the most advanced and effective anti-slavery upsurge of its kind in the Atlantic world before 1787. Now, just a little bit of context here, because Holton actually includes enslaved people in his narrative, thus bringing up the inescapable reality that slavery itself was somewhere near the center of the American Revolution, not something that the consensus schools especially, oh, what, comfortable uh, discussing, maybe like when your, you know, your dad realized he had to finally talk to you about the birds and the bees. It was all kind of yeah. awkward. Uh, and that's kind of like the consensus school when it comes to slavery. It's like, oh, so what, what, what Lentz is saying is he's trying to accentuate the positive, isn't he? He's trying to say, listen, mm -hmm. the American Revolution may not have ended slavery, magnanimous of him to say, wouldn't you, yeah. wouldn't you think? But, but that it did sow the seeds of the greatest anti-slavery revolutionary movement up to that time in history. For his part, Gordon Wood says, these changes were radical and they were extensive. To focus as we are today apt to do on what the revolution did not accomplish, read and slavery, highlighting and lamenting its failure to abolish slavery and change fundamentally the lot of women is to miss the great significance of what it did accomplish. Indeed, the revolution made possible the anti-slavery and women's rights movements of the 19th century, and in fact, all our current egalitarian thinking. Okay, so wow. folks, exhibit A, historical narcissism, right? That is the storytelling trick, the moment of bewildering, when the US national story, determined to be a freedom story, remains safe as a freedom story through this sort of literary sleight of hand by seemingly make what? The inescapable fact of slavery's existence disappear from sight. What do you think? I, the, the I've had this discussion before with students and I think probably with you as well, but the, the whole idea of the seeds of liberty, it's like, if, if you're hungry and you said, you know, I, I planted some corn out, outside and somebody says, well, I'm hungry now. And you said, well, the corn's gonna be ready in a hundred years. Like that's not very satisfying, right? <laughs> the, the idea is not to plant the seeds of liberty. The, the idea is to give liberty, right? That's what revolution is supposed to be. I mean, the very act of revolution, right, is about sudden radical change. Um, and here they want to call it revolution, but also want to want us to all be patient and wait a century for the seeds of that liberty to actually bear any kind of fruit, even as withered and rotten as, as, as it often was in the case of the United States. It's such bad history because it takes as a starting point, you know, this, this moment and then assumes that everything that comes after is the result of that, but only if those things are good, right? <laughs> the, the bad stuff is not part of those seeds. Um, it's only the good stuff that that's the seeds of it. You know, they would not accept that kind of argument uh, from those they don't agree with. And yet they, they present it here as if it's, um, right. Like an inarguable truth that we that everybody needs to accept, um, you know, without without question. Well, and that's because that's what narcissists do. In other words, it's a lot yes. easier yeah. to quote be patient 
if you're not the one who's on the receiving end of that soldier's boot or the rifle butt or the, you know, the overseer's whip or something, right? In other words, it's that exclusivity of the narrative, you know, who gets in and who gets out. And so, yeah, it's easy for, you know, for, for white folks in this case to be patient, you know, for what? For Abraham Lincoln to come along. You know, in other words, if we take the time of the U.S. Constitution, the writing of the Constitution, down to the time of the, the abolition of slavery, we're talking about almost 80 years. Right. And if you're saying, well, you know, be, be patient, dear reader, it's going to take another 80 years for the abolition of slavery. Um, then what gets lost in that translation are, you know, are the folks lives, the lived experience of those who had to live under the thraldom of slavery throughout that 80 year period. And we're talking about two, three, maybe four generations of people. Right. Who couldn't be patient because they were too busy trying to survive you know, this, this grievous wrong. And so, yeah, you know, it's, it's the narcissism of that, that view that is willing to say, look, it's a hop, skip and a jump until you get what you want. So just, you know, be patient, listen. Uh, and, and the narcissist will it, it basically confess this. I mean, Sean Wilentz in his review says, in short, although slavery became more entrenched and the slaveholders more powerful in the United States after the revolution, the success of the revolution greatly hastened, directly and indirectly, the overthrow of slavery in the Anglo-American world. It's so absurd. Wow. I mean, look, well, you know you're other, in yeah. trouble when he starts that first clause by saying, although. Although, you know, although the something. exact opposite of what I said should happen is happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although slavery became more entrenched, I mean, that's a huge thing to acknowledge, isn't it? But yeah, it kind of right. rolls off the narcissist tongue like it was just a kind of transitional reality until such time that it all got rectified or something, you know. So in that one word, although, I think the entirety of this historical narcissism is kind of uh, is hidden, you know. Now, a couple of historians we like one Marcus Redeker, who's written a lot of great books about. Can, sub I, can I make one more point? Can I make one more point before you, we, yeah, you go right. to Redeker because it kind of ties back to something we were talking about earlier? Yeah. Um, so, so the other thing I know this is a, a, is going to be something near and dear to your heart is is the assumption of these these scholars Gordon Wood and Lentz is again that politics means something done by white people. So, like you know, abolition is about white people granting freedom to uh to to enslave people um but you know who the most radical abolitionists of all were the enslaved people right it's not you know mm -hmm. some you know uh you know some middle class bostonian um it's enslaved people who are throughout that whole time in which you know we're supposed to be patient and wait for uh, white people to come around and, and and grant freedom um they were the ones who were fighting and, and dying and running away and rebelling and uh undermining the system in all these ways large and small um, and yet they're not part of the story um, that Wilentz that or, or Wood want us to hear about. No, they're not. And that's such a good point, because given its exclusivity, you know, that that narcissism really is is in effect kind of talking to itself, that is to its own yes. constituency of like minded you know, people, whether whether it be, you know, racially or financially, economically, politically defined. Uh, it's a it's a kind of self-referencing group of people, you know, and, and historians have challenged this, Josh. I mean, there's been some 
you know, really beautiful, brilliant <clears throat> scholarship over the last, uh, you know, 20 years, but, but, but really longer, but, but certainly in the last 20 years, a kind of critical mass in the uh, area of U.S. history, especially. Uh, one of those books you and I have been uh, really enjoying, uh, written by a couple of uh, historians, Leinbon, Radiker, Mar Marcus Radiker from the University of Pittsburgh, who's written a bunch of books on those who get left out, right? You know, the subaltern peoples, mm -hmm. in his case, often looking at the, the lives of, of merchant sailors and dock workers and others who helped facilitate that whole Atlantic world, ocean-bound um, you know, circulation of peoples and commodities and whatnot. So, you know, usually you don't think of those folks. You know, we think of the, the heroic, you know, uh, folks, uh, the power brokers of the colonial era, you know, the great figures, the John Winthrops, the colonial governors, et cetera, but, but not Radiker. And so in his book with Leinbaugh, uh, they say in looking at these folks, the historic invisibility of many of the book's subjects owes much to the repression originally visited upon them. The violence of the stake, the chopping block, the gallows, the shackles of a ship's dark hold. It also owes much to the violence of abstraction in the writing of history, the severity of history that has long been the captive of the nation state, which remains in most studies, the largely unquestioned framework of analysis. And I really like that because, you know, these guys are saying, look, not only were these people who were uh, defined as other, you know, poor people, working people, non-white people, et cetera, migratory peoples, you know, transient ephemeral peoples, not only were they defined, you know, as other and, and had then violence visited upon them, you know, like your petitioners in India, you know, at Amistar, yeah. Armistar, yeah. That, that, uh, that that violence then follows into the narratives that are written about these ages and about these uh, people as well in that sort of vein of what we're calling historical uh, narcissism. And so, look, if you want to see the American Revolution as a watershed moment, the seedbed of liberty, uh, and you have to begrudgingly acknowledge that far from ending slavery, that slavery in the United States will, as uh, the historian Edward uh, Baptiste says, will metastasize, right? Slavery doesn't go away because of the American Revolution. In fact, to the contrary, it increases on a kind of exponential level that in order to deal with that and to create that historically narcissistic narrative where you're determined to say that it is after all a freedom story, Yes, you'll acknowledge those wrongs, but remember the word although, Josh, with the word yeah, although, yeah. you can make generations of cruelty and suffering seemingly disappear like a David Copperfield illusionist trick or something and keep that narcissistic focus on what is triumphal and self-aggrandizing. Because look, it's not in dispute. It's not as if some historians say that, yeah, slavery did grow and some say well no it didn't that's not the point although sometimes they'll claim that it's you know a factual issue it's not a factual issue the only real question is what what do we want to say about it what sort of story do we want to tell about it right in other words we have to make yeah. decisions about the meaning of these events these tragic events these long-standing you know injustices etc 
And for the historically narcissistic, the story they want to tell is one that then is exclusive of that. You know, one that may acknowledge magnanimously that those things happen, but which then clearly and quickly redirects the meaning with a word like although, you know, toward what is, after all, the more positive and affirming element of the story they wish to tell. And so it, it sort of reminds me, it's like that bad memory, you know, that you've tried to sublimate, you know, that that episode <laughs> from your past where you're thinking, oh, I, 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 I really, you know, I, I, I was a little uh, crazy. You know, you, you'd rather not think about it, right? You'd rather just sublimate it, put it somewhere where it's not gonna, but you know, it's there, right? And, and you know, when you end up in therapy or something, the therapist is gonna shake, her head and say, no, 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 we need to, we need to surface this. We need to get this out. We need, you know, the healthy response, right, is not just to sublimate, but to actually, you know, look at this. And I think, you know, as I, as we, uh, as we try to consider these things, you know, in, in terms of, of the stories we tell and what those stories mean for us, you know, that, that by using that, that sleight of hand in the narcissistic vein, that although, qualifier. You know, what we leave is a lot of really, you know, awful sublimation, a lot of really tragic sublimation that far from, as we might imagine, you know, a narcissist would thinking it doesn't affect us, actually does have a corrosive effect on us, even if we don't surface it, you know, in that kind of inner psychology of who we claim to be. It's absolutely you know, destructive and not not just for the people to whom the injustice happened, by the way, that's that's clear enough. Right. But to those who imagine themselves as having been somehow, you know, on the other side of it and therefore, you know, spared the worst of it or something, I think even for that, you know, um, that mindset, it's also terribly uh, destructive. There was a great piece in New York Times you and I were looking at by the, the Times uh, commentary writer Jamel Bowie back on the 28th of January called Is Slavery an Evil Beyond Measure? Because what Bowie did, you know, is he, he, he showed that this post-American revolutionary period, what we sometimes call the early national period, that, that almost 80 years that runs from the Constitution to the Civil War, was a critical and fundamental period in American history uh, because it's when America goes from being that provincial colonial state to being, you know, on its way to a global economic player, uh, ultimately, eventually a military power, et cetera. Uh, and it's during this period then, this early national and antebellum period that all of that happens. And, you know, he says it's hard to quantify, does Jamel Bowie, the total volume of sales on the domestic slave trade but scholars estimate that in the 40-year period between the Missouri Compromise, say of 1820, and the secession crisis of the Civil War, at least 875,000 people were sent south and southwest from the Upper South, most as a result of commercial transactions, the rest as a consequence of planter migration. He's talking about enslaved Black people, right, Josh? He's talking about those who during this era that others want to sort of treat so lightly. Actually, almost a million will become part of this developing story of the American nation, not as free people, but as enslaved people. And Bowie writes, no data, no matter how precise, is complete. There are things that quantification 
can obscure. And there are, again, ethical questions that must be asked and answered when dealing with the quantitative study of human atrocity, which is what we're ultimately doing when we're bringing statistical and mathematical methods to the study of slavery. And what he's talking about here is what this more recent generation of historical writers understand as, as sort of the, uh, the making of human beings abstractable. That is the use of yeah. big data numbers to try to quantify just how many people were enslaved after all. And even that in, in some ways ultimately doesn't get at, I think, what is the true meaning of that lived experience because it, it turns into a kind of statistical package or, or reference, you know, what was actually on the ground after all you know, and, and, you know, and a terrible amount of human suffering on a personal level. It's that old line, what do they attribute it to Stalin? I think that one death is a tragedy, but a million is a statistic or something. So let me say that one of the these younger historians, you know, who's doing so much to, I think, change our storytelling frame and our, our, our frame for, for understanding the meaning of these things is Marissa Fuentes. And, and, and Jim L. Bowie quit, uh, quoted uh, Fuentes uh, in her book on, on slavery in, in the, uh, the West Indies by merely re reproducing the metrics of slave traders, Fuentes writes, you're not actually providing us with information about the people the humans who actually bore the brunt of this violence. And that's important. It's important to humanize this history, to understand that this happened to African human beings. And it's such an easy thing to lose sight of, Josh, when you, when you fall back on that narcissistic rendering, because that experience of human beings gets sublimated into a word like what? Although? Well, then you also, I mean, the other point is that when you start talking about numbers, then the argument can be about the numbers and not about the humans involved, you know? So what if it was 10 million Africans who were brought across the Atlantic instead of 12 million? Is that less of a tragedy? What if the dead in Amritsar was 1,200 instead of 400 or 289 instead of, instead of 500? Um, is one uh, a tragedy and one is acceptable? Um, yeah. And and so ultimately, what it does, you know, when you get into the numbers, is you obscure, as as you were saying, that these are humans involved in this, um, not abstractions, but these are our, our lives who are being um, extinguished, lives being um, uh, destroyed, lives being altered in some fundamental way through cruelty, through murder, through violence, uh, in in pursuit yeah. of of power and wealth. And in, and in real time, for those folks, yes. it all played out in real time. It's not something that, like Edward Baptiste says, we can cram 25 decades of enslavement into one single textbook chapter that makes it seem, yeah. what, truncated, brief, just a passing episode or something. 25 right. decades, you know. Uh, but even if it was a single moment of punishment, you know, a single moment of being fired upon, you know, by a colonial soldier or something that in the real time lived experience on a human scale, you know, that's something that we can't afford to simply, uh, you know, wash over or something. Because if we do, if we do that, if we if we take Gordon Wood and Sean Wilentz, you know, on their on their narrative word here and say, well, this was this was a transitional period you know, represented by the word although. Yes, although slavery continued. You know, we know what's going to happen with Abraham Lincoln and the freeing of the slaves. If we do that, 
then it just becomes a race, it seems to me, between two unequal competitors. One of, being, one of them being the propensity of that system, the United States, the British Empire, to create the next tragedy. Because after all, remember, these systems are not fundamentally redesigned. Even in the case of abolishing slavery, what replaces slavery, Josh, but decades of Jim Crow racial segregation, right? So mm -hmm. we cannot say that either, I think, you know, the British Empire after 1919 uh, or the United States, you know, after the Constitution and all these decades of slavery, that either of these systems were fundamentally changed. So then it just becomes a race between that system and the propensity of that system to create the next tragedy on the one hand, and the other being the steadfastness, steadfastness of human memory to somehow forestall it. You know, we're always told to remember so we don't repeat the mistakes of the past, right? But in this case, the ephemeral nature of human memory, you know, to remember the tragedy, remember the massacre, remember the enslavement, ultimately not only diminishes with time, but gets part of that bewildering process of historical narcissism that even makes it seem over time to be something other than what it was originally remembered as being and kind of, you know, redounding to the credit of the system that created in the first place, right? Um, yeah. So, okay. So we'll leave it with Edward Baptiste here. He says, uh, America's modernization was about entrepreneurs, creativity, invention, markets, movement, and change. Slavery was not about any of these things. Not about slave trading or moving people away from everyone they knew in order to make them cotton. Therefore, modern America and slavery had nothing to do with each other. And that's the ultimate bewildering of memory, I think, that makes it so unequal to the task when confronting the system. Because in the end, the memory gets transformed and it just seems like, sure, America modernized and grew to what it would become in these years. But apparently, in the word, although, slavery didn't have anything to do with that, Josh. And therefore, we can substitute in place of that more clinical accounting of human suffering. Uh, what? A kind of more flattering, nostalgic, even romantic image of slavery before the Civil War in the vein of Gone with the Wind, of noble slave owners, fair ladies, you know, Southern bells, and happy enslaved people. That's ultimately the really destructive part, I think, is that's what fills the memory void the bewildering of that memory fills the void and becomes somehow, you know, the remembered truth. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a great Gandhi quote, maybe we can end, end with this, that um, I think speaks to, I think, you know, Wood and Wilentz and Churchill and, and all the rest, um, at a time in which a lot of, of British critics of, of the massacre were, you know, holding up Dyer as, as this unique individual who committed this unique act um, who created this this massacre out of nothing? Uh, Gandhi's asked what he wants to do about about Dyer. What do you think should happen with Dyer? He says we do not want to punish General Dyer. We have no desire for revenge. We want to change the system that produces General Dyers. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's because he understood that this was going to be an experience repeated. Correct? You know, exactly. exactly. Yeah. 
memory, forgetting, repeat our shampoo, our shampoo history formula for sure. Let's go. Well, the concern is misplaced because if you look at the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans. So I was thinking about that uh, statement by the uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Josh. Uh, it was it was on the one hand, it was a kind of classic foot in the mouth statement. So there was a lot of Twitter snark happening about, you know, mm -hmm. McConnell finally saying the, the silent part about uh, out loud about you know, how he sees African-Americans as somehow a different, you know, subset or if not even a subset, a kind of what, a kind of outgroup from those of what he calls yeah. Americans. And and it really sort of connects to what we were saying earlier about the, the kind of narcissistic and exclusive quality of these stories, right? Yeah. And I think it goes back to the, the Baldwin quote that you, you talked about earlier, right? That that ultimately in his mind, um, you know, that the, the rituals and the bewildering is not meant to be about African-Americans, not meant to be about black people. They're, they were always on the outside of this um, and should be considered a, as separate um, because the story was never about them. It was never intended to to, to speak of them or to uh, use them as anything but uh, but fodder for our own stories of, of progress and civilization and, 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 and growth yeah. and, and freedom and justice, I guess. Oh yeah, yeah, remarkably. And only a way a narcissist could make that happen, right? Um, and all, yeah. uh, listen, all Twitter snark aside, you know, McConnell, I, I see it as a perfect illustration of how the standard version history then of the U.S. conditions people's thinking. You know, we might call the othering of black people as slaves in the national narrative, but ultimately subsumed in that word, although, as if their lived experiences were just a kind of placeholder for what, some great and triumphal you know, eventual abolition of slavery or something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not to mention the subtext of what, you know, Mitch is saying, I almost get this feeling like, well, black people should be fortunate that they can vote at all, right? You know, there's, there's yeah. sort of that inescapable thing. Well, let me finish it here then, once again, with Edward uh, Baptiste, uh, whose uh, great book from about almost 10 years ago now, 2014, is one of those works that so challenged the, the consensus school of uh, that kind of triumphal, you know, uh, storytelling of the U.S. past, uh, because what what Baptist wrote about in, in Baptiste wrote about in his book, the the half has not never been told, is what I guess I would call the non-narcissistic view of slavery during that interim period. That is that period that. Sean Wilentz wants to encapsulate in the word of although. And what Baptiste writes is that, quote, understanding something of what it felt like to suffer and what it cost to endure that suffering is crucial to the understanding the course of, of, of the United States and, and of US history. And I, I really appreciate that because as historians, we can't be narcissistic about suffering the point of, of, of acknowledging it isn't to congratulate ourselves on, you know, what, eventually creating an abolition or something. The, the point of acknowledging it is to affirming the, not only the lived experience, but the personhood, uh, the presence, and the humanity of those who, who had to endure it. Uh, and by, how can we do that? How can we possibly do that without acknowledging the full scope
of that suffering as opposed to sublimating it. And until we come to, and, and you know, as conservatives say, well, that's very defeatist and that'll tell children to be what? To be ashamed of their, I would argue just to the contrary. It's the, perhaps to paraphrase Lincoln, the last best hope we have to come to terms with who we've been and therefore who we want to be. This has been episode 54. Thanks for being with us today. And we will talk to you again in uh, about a month. Enjoy. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one goes in your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening. Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV. Stop stuck in a cycle so we